great to be back in what I often describe as my happy place, um, here with you with the Sermon on the Mount open. Oh my goodness. Uh, we are slowly working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, week 10. We have another couple of weeks and then we'll be done. And I've said several times that the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the most influential ethical discourse in Western history. And I'm up for the argument tonight. If you want to dispute that, I'm happy to have the five-minute version or the full half hour. That's absolutely fine. There are aspects of Western culture and ethics that can only have come into our tradition via the Sermon on the Mount. For instance, the way our society values humility over pride, at least in theory. Our hunch that justice is incomplete without mercy. And what about the strange conviction that love of enemies is actually a path to peace? Or the fact that our culture is instinctively distrustful of the externalities of religion. None of that can be traced to Greece or Rome, the other two great cultural influences in the West. It certainly didn't pop up in the Enlightenment in the 18th century, but it is all featured in the Sermon on the Mount, and if this were a different kind of talk, we could trace together the influence of all of these ideas in the second and third centuries throughout the Roman world as Christianity began to change people's hearts and transform an entire empire. And today's passage, Matthew 7, I hope you have it open, is a classic example of this influence of Jesus' teaching on the Western world. The teaching in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, entered into our culture as a thorn in the side to the human tendency toward self-righteousness. Do not judge, Matthew 7, 1, or you too will be judged. Or as the old English has it, judge not, lest ye be judged. And these words, judge not, lest ye be judged, along with verse 5, the plank or log in your eye, have entered into Western culture as idioms. And you find them everywhere in English literature and casual conversation. At a 30-second Google search on Monday, uh, uncovered uh, two articles in mainstream media um, in the last uh, few months that actually cite, without attribution, <laughs> these uh, sayings of Jesus. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now, at one level, it's wonderful to know how influential Jesus has been, don't you think? I love that idea, and I love it when I bump into people who use expressions that are clearly the sayings of Jesus, and they don't know it. I've told you, haven't I, of that time I was speaking to a politician who said he's always lived by the wonderful JFK motto, uh, to the person who's being given much, much is required. And I had the great delight of explaining that that's straight out of Jesus' lips in Matthew's Gospel. <laughs> this politician was actually kind of happy that it went back even beyond JFK. 
But there's a downside to this cultural relic of the teachings of Jesus. Because we can become so accustomed to them that we miss their vitality that was there originally. I mean, that's the thing about a proverb. Once it becomes a proverb in a culture, it's extracted from the original setting, and we can sometimes use the proverb in a way the original speaker never intended. And I reckon, judge not lest to be judged, is a good example of this mistake. <clears throat> so I want to first clear up a misunderstanding about these words, and then explore their enduring power. First, the misunderstanding. I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard someone throw these words at the Christian. Judge not. Just after the Christians tried to gently explain their moral viewpoint about something. How dare you judge? Actually, I wish I had a, a, a dollar for every time I've heard Christians scold themselves. Oh, I know I shouldn't judge. When all they've done is offered a critique of something in our world. But I don't think Jesus intended for us to think of judge in that superficial way. The word judge is, in here, here in Matthew's Gospel, uh, crino, crino. And like our English word judge, it has a huge spectrum of meanings. At one end, it just means to discern something, right through to critique something, and right through to the other end of the spectrum, to condemn. At the neutral end of the spectrum, it just means discern, like when we say, um, I judge the distance of something or I judge a competition, or I make a judgment about what car to buy. It's, it's neutral, it's just about discerning. But at the other end of the spectrum, it does frequently in Scripture mean to condemn, to overthrow, to count someone's sins against them. And so here are a couple of uses at that other end of the spectrum. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to crino the world, translated here, condemn, rightly, but to save the world through him. Actually, crino is the word for the day of judgment, uh, Revelation 20. And I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were crinoed, according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave out the dead that were in it, death and Hades gave out the dead that were in them, and each person was crinoed according to what they had done. This is a reference to the judgment of God, the condemnation that follows sin. To judge in Matthew 7 can't mean to discern right from wrong, or even to critique wrong. The whole Sermon on the Mount, think of the logic of the whole Sermon on the Mount, asks us to reject one way of life that Jesus calls evil, and embrace another way of life that he calls righteousness. So <laughs> there's something very basic about the whole Sermon on the Mount that says the judge cannot mean to discern right from wrong. And later in this very chapter, if you glance down at, say, verse 15, he explicitly asks us to make critical judgments. Chapter 7, verse 15. 
Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. The fruit of their lives requires critical discernment. Or, or, or there in um, verse 6, just uh, read to us, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Uh, pearls before swine, of course, is another saying of Jesus that entered into English idiom. I should probably pause, shouldn't I, and explain this pearls before swine uh, business. Um, the sacred pearl before the swine here is presumably the teaching of Christ, both here in the Sermon on the Mount and the wider gospel. Some people are so resistant to Christ and His ways that He suggests we sometimes withdraw, lest it completely backfire. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, because Jesus, of course, was renowned as the friend of sinners, wasn't He? We did a whole sermon on that. He wined and dined with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. That's who Jesus is. But He also, when He sent out His disciples to preach His pearl, His message, He gave them this caveat just a few chapters later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you, the apostles who have preached in various towns, or listen to your words, Jesus' words, the pearls, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. <laughs> Pretty strong. Piece of prophetic theatre, no doubt, but clearly involves a critique. A critique. Reflecting on this pearls before swine saying, Don Carson who's a really uh, fabulous Canadian theologian, says this, Over the years, I have gradually come to the place where I refuse to attempt to explain Christianity and introduce Christ to the person who just wants to mock and argue and ridicule. It accomplishes nothing good, and there are so many other opportunities where time and energy can be invested more profitably. Personally, I think this pearls before swine teaching has never been more relevant than in our intractable online ridicule of Christianity. Anyway, the broader point, my first point, is that Jesus didn't say we weren't meant to judge in the sense of discerning right from wrong, or even in the sense of critiquing what is wrong. Apart from anything, that would make a mockery of verse 5, where Jesus says He actually wants us eventually to see clearly, verse 5, to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That surely involves a proper form of moral discernment, of moral critique, that doesn't flip into judgmentalism in the negative sense. Let me give you some live examples that are, you know, bound to annoy someone. I am critical of the Australian government's cuts to promised foreign aid. I really am. I mean, I can understand you pausing foreign aid, right? But to cut what's been promised means that World Vision and Tier Australia and Opportunity International 
we'll have to cut programs because they were counting on the promise. That to me just seems difficult. I'm critical also of the federal government's, what seems to me, mistreatment of asylum seekers. But I'm not condemning Malcolm Turnbull or Peter Dutton or anyone else in the government. I'm really not. I'm making a critical judgment about right and wrong that seems to me to flow from the wisdom of Christ. There is judgment and there is judgment. Perhaps on the other side of the ledger, I also think that sex before marriage is foolish and wrong. And what's more, I think as a theological and logical principle, that by definition marriage can only be between a man and a woman. But I can form that judgment and even critique without actually condemning those who see it differently. I think I'm just repeating what Jesus taught, his wisdom. We mustn't let ourselves be bullied or bully ourselves into being sheepish about the wisdom of Christ through misunderstanding what he meant when he said, judge not, lest you be judged. In the current climate, people are going to protest. They're going to say, oh, you shouldn't judge. Even after your gentlest attempt to say, oh, this is how I see it, right? Sometimes you just got to cop it. And not fret that you're defying the Lord simply because someone's thrown the Lord's words back at you out of context. And other times, depending on the setting, I think it is worth pointing out the irony of this protest. Oh, you're so judgmental, unaware of the judgment that they're making of you for being judgmental, and so on. You've got to pick the conversation, by the way, friends. That's the misunderstanding. Let's turn to the intended meaning of Matthew 7, because I think it's powerful, cutting, and revolutionary. In this context, to judge must mean to condemn. To move beyond moral discernment or even critique and begin to, if I can put it like this, hold people's sins against them in thought, word, or deed. So we might render Jesus' words there in verses 1 and 2 something like this. Do not hold people's sins against them or you too will have your sins held against you by the Lord. For in the same way you hold the sins of others against them, you will have your sins held against you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I can be critical of the Prime Minister's policies about asylum seekers and the desperately poor, but I mustn't badmouth him. I mustn't stop praying for him and honouring him. That would be to condemn and judge. Again, it's fine to think that our world is in a fog about sex. But I must still love and respect the man who visits prostitutes, the woman who views porn, the gay couple down the road, 
the polyamorous bisexual woman. To do anything else would be to judge, to condemn, would be to defy the teachings of Jesus. And actually, this ought to be, I know it's not, but this ought to be just instinctive for the Christian. Because there's one sinner I find it really easy to love and respect. His name's John Dixon. And sometimes, friends, he's a complete jerk. But I really rate him. See, I, I live with such a knowledge of my sin. But, but I love myself. I look after myself. I judge, but I don't judge, if you know what I mean. Being aware of my own sin and of the grace of God toward me regardless frees me not to judge others. And this is the meaning of those famous words that follow there in verses 3 to 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I love the way Jesus has so obviously brought into his teaching an experience of his own trade. He was a carpenter, right? The one thing carpenters know all about is specks of sawdust in the eye. And um, I wonder how many times Jesus, learning the trade from his father, got a speck in his eye and had to say, Father, can you help? Or the other way around, the times that Joseph said, you know, son, you've got to get this speck out of my eye. It must have dawned on him one day, what a great picture of the moral life this is. Stay closely with this. The, the one thing you can't do when you've got a speck in your eye is see clearly. Right? Someone's got to help. Especially in a culture where there are no mirrors. Right? We need each other. Humbly to help each other on the right track. That's not judging. That's loving. The other truth, no doubt from Jesus' experience as a carpenter, is that when you've got a speck in your eye, it feels like a plank. That's, that's the thing. I think that's what, what this uh, metaphor is about. To the onlooker, the thing in my eye is just a tiny dot on the eyeball, but to me it's everything. It blocks my whole field of vision. It's a plank. And so uh, I think that the speck plank thing are metaphors of perspective. The sin in your own life should seem larger to you than the sin in anyone else's life. Because it's your sin. It's your plank. The sin of others should look like a speck. And this isn't to minimize the sin in the world. No way. It's just that Christians should be so aware of their own sin and God's mercy 
that they just won't condemn other people. We find it easy to love and respect ourselves despite knowing our sins. We should find it relatively easy to do the same with others, especially if we're a believer in Jesus. If I were to put this plank speck image in a kind of punchline, I'd say we ought to be at least as conscious of our own sin as we are of the sin of others. At least as conscious of our own sin as we are of the sin of others. And you know what? This brings us right back to the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people have told me that they've been trying to memorize the Beatitudes. Good on you. Great thing to remember. What's the first line of the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Whoa. The opening line of this lofty ethical discourse is that the kingdom belongs not to those who think they are in credit with God, but those who know that their inner self before God, their spirit, is poor, bankrupt, out of credit. The opening line. And what's the second line of the Sermon on the Mount? The second beatitude? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And when we unpacked that together um, a couple of months ago now, I guess, I said that what Jesus calls for is a humble melancholy. A humble melancholy. That first sees the sin in my own life and only then mourns, laments the sin in the world. That's the basic posture of the Christian in the world. Actually, this has been put really beautifully uh, by uh, Francis Spufford, uh, who's a Cambridge intellectual who uh, recently fell away from his elite British atheism into boring old Anglicanism and lost all his mates in the process. But he wrote a book. And look how he puts this, this theme I'm trying to get at. So, of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky, clean, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Not that can be securely designated as such. Christianity can't be about circling the wagons of virtue in the suburbs and keeping the unruly inner city at bay. This, I realize, goes flat contrary to the present predominant image of Christianity as something existing in prissy, fastidious little enclaves far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. There are Christians like that, he says. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things, or in the same way, or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognize each other. He teaches writing in Cambridge, by the way, in case you're wondering. <laughs> or as I put it less eloquently, we ought to be at least as conscious of our own sin as we are of the sin of others.
Well, let me uh, bring this to a close. Our paragraphs today function as the beginning of the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't add another ethical item, actually. It begins to draw things to a close by describing the correct posture of those who have heard all of the ethical teachings of Jesus. Jesus has reached such ethical heights in chapters 5 and 6 of Matthew. He's called for peacemaking, truth-telling, sexual purity, love, non-violence, charity to the poor, simplicity in prayer, shunning materialism, all those things we've looked at. But now, the logic of this passage is that, of course, the temptation, once you've heard all that lofty teaching, is to look down on those who don't live by the teaching, isn't it? You find yourself going, wow, I'm in possession of the best ethics. And you start to look down on people who don't live by it. And Jesus is saying, no way. According to Jesus, if we really know his ethic, we will not judge. So as I say, I don't see this as an additional ethical command. I think it's a description of the proper stance of anyone who gets Jesus. When we know the mind of the maker, we will not look down on others. We will be as conscious of our own sin as we are the sin of anyone else. So there are really two things I want to leave us with today two sides of the same coin, and they're kind of obvious. I've talked about them already, really. First, please don't let the foggy thinking of our world push you around. It will. As soon as you open your mouth with an ethical discourse that's different to the, from the reigning paradigm... Oh, you shouldn't judge. You just got to get used to the fact that some people really like parts of Jesus' teaching and the same people dislike other parts of Jesus' teaching and other people like other parts of Jesus' teaching and dislike the other parts of Jesus' teaching. This was true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. Take yourself back to first century Israel. People wholly agreed with Jesus on stuff like Caring for the poor, marriage, sex, prayer. But they disliked Jesus' injunctions about love of enemies, judging other people. Those things creeped them out. We now just happen to live in a culture that's been so influenced by Jesus' teaching, they happen now to love Jesus' teaching of love. And this teaching about judge not. People really dig that. But the same people who like that part of Jesus' teaching do not like what he said about sex or marriage or prayer or perhaps most of all, money. Here's one of the most important spiritual truths. So what? So what? Our culture's disagreements with Jesus are no more significant than his culture's disagreements with Jesus. 
Christians throughout the ages have generally just shrugged their shoulders when people object to stuff that they think and got on with loving people and, and believing and proclaiming what they know to be God's eternal wisdom and not the passing preferences of a cultural blip. They don't judge, but they're happy to judge. They don't condemn and hold people's sins against them, but they discern and they're happy to critique with gentleness and respect. But of course, there's a second and probably more important thing to ponder. We mustn't let our self-righteous hearts look down on those who don't agree with Christ's teaching. Because once you come into possession of, of this Sermon on the Mount, once you begin to see glimpse of, glimpses of it activated in your life, the human instinct, but it's just sin, is to look down on others who don't measure up. That is the clearest sign of all that you haven't really got the teachings of Jesus. There's one person in your life you already simultaneously recognize as a sinner and love. And that's, that's the idea here. You know, loving the sinner but hating the sin gets such a bad rap now. You hear people ridicule it, turn it into a sort of odious cliche. I want to say, actually, it's genius. And the fact that our culture has lost the moral imagination to work out how it's possible to profoundly critique on a moral issue and profoundly care and respect for the people who disagree... The fact that it can't get its head around that is, to me, a loss from our culture that's disappearing with the loss of the gospel from our culture. Because people who know the gospel know that it's entirely possible to critique and love. After all, I mean, that's basically the gospel. God's got a problem with us, and He loves us. Well, let me end by simply saying... Once you know the teaching of Christ and the gospel more broadly, you will not judge, not in the negative sense. When we know that we are forgiven for our sin through no merit of our own, but only through Christ's death and resurrection, there goes another basis for judging. See, it's, it's not just the doctrine of sin removes our judgment of others. It's the doctrine of grace. Because if it were just the doctrine of sin, you could think, oh, I've, I've made some moral improvements. Now I've climbed three steps up the ladder. I'm looking down on all those people who are only two steps up the ladder, right? But a Christian doesn't do that. A Christian knows it's all of grace, all of grace. And when you know your sin and you know the grace of God, you will not judge. It is implausible and impermissible. Of course, we will stand up for Christ's wisdom. We will pray for our nation. We will do what we can to commend Christ to our friends and family who see things differently. Yes, 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 yes. But we will not judge.
So, Lord, we ask that you write these words in our hearts. Protect us from the sin of self-righteousness. Enable us to think clearly about ourselves and the world, but not hold sins against others. To live in this world as people who are wise and yet gentle and loving. Father, we need your Spirit's work in our lives to do this, so we ask that you pour out your Spirit on us as a church and as individuals, that we might live by the gospel we believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.